The following is a recording of a personal blog. Episodes may contain topics of abuse, sexual violence, self-harm, and death. All topics are handled with care, but some details shared are triggering. Listener discretion is advised. To understand what switching is like when you have dissociative identity disorder, you have to first remember what it's like to lose a memory, which to be 100% honest is really ironic, remembering the time you lost your memory. Right now, I'm recording in a place that is exceptionally comfortable for me, a place that I've been for a very, very long time and that I would spend alone with my alters. So not exactly alone, but either without my partner or a friend or family. And that's my bed. I, a lot of the time, would play on my bed, sleep on my bed, eat on my bed and I would use it to sit on while playing video games. And so my bed would turn into a couch and sometimes a table, depending on how much paperwork I needed to lay out or if I was organizing something, it would become my desk or if I was building a Gundam, it would become my workbench or if I made Tamiya, anything really. My idea of a bed is my comfort place and it is not used solely for sleeping like it should be from what I understand and having your bed be your place so that way you can go to it and fall asleep is the healthier thing but for me I had so much insomnia and my personality is making my brain run a million miles per hour. I would do a lot of crying in my bed, silently, hidden, alone with Damien. And so I've had a full gamut of emotions in this spot, in this place, which is my bed. And when I say my bed, I don't mean literally the thing I'm laying on right now. I mean any place that I would have a bed, whether it be a hotel room, my grandparents' house, a friend's house, a sleeping bag, a tent, just that place I would lie down and go, I'm not going to participate anymore in the day, and I'm going to spend my night in this one spot. As a kid, staying up in bed in this one spot, a lot of the time involving having a Game Boy Advance with a light on it, or a Game Boy with a light on it, and I would play throughout the night as much as I can, whether it be Pokemon or Advance Wars, just something to make it so that way I didn't have to think about the pain. But it's also in this spot where I would have a lot of moments where 
I would be in pain. And that's why I chose to record this while I laid in bed. I have very comfortable pajamas on. My cat is cuddling with me. And I am very comfortable. Because the things I want to try to share with you are very painful. And I still have a bit of shame with them. But this is what a switch is. It's when I'm no longer as the host, Armand. And I dissociate so much that I go unconscious. And a personality will then take over my body, our body, and present themselves and do whatever they want. But over time, they didn't do whatever they wanted. They were just trying to figure things out as, as much as I could. Because their memories and my memories become so fractured and so broken that it's like watching a movie at three times its speed. And now and then, the TV would just turn off and then turn back on. And sometimes it would rewind or fast forward or skip entire scenes. And at the very end, you don't really have the experience of watching a movie. You have the experience at looking at these tiny little windows of some narrative that's not only blurred, but out of order. And you have to ask yourself, do I want to be a detective and figure this out? For some people, it's so exhausting they don't. They don't figure out what happens during that point in time. They don't go out asking people, who did you talk to? What name did I say I had? Are you okay? Do you think that was me? And I'll be honest, I hate those questions because I never want to be absent. I'll always be okay with saying, I don't know. I don't remember. I think I may have switched, but I don't want to press on it because ultimately it reminds me of how much out of control I am. So let's start. How do you remember losing your memory? Let's say you wake up, you have breakfast, and even though it may have been five hours later, somebody asks you, what did you have for breakfast? And you tell them initially, I had eggs. And then you realized, you've been out of eggs for a week now. You're just remembering the last time you had a good breakfast. And then you go, no way, I didn't have eggs. And all of that happens in a millisecond. That tiny little thought of correction. And so you correct and go, I didn't have eggs. I had cereal. And then you remember, you've been having cereal for the past four days. It's the only thing you've been really eating because you haven't been able to get new eggs. And then 
another millisecond of thought happens and you realize that you've been out of milk for a month and then it dawns on you. You had normalcy in your life that you can call back on, but that morning, regardless of whether or not you had the eggs or the cereal, wasn't actually the thing that you did that morning. What you did that morning was not have breakfast. And when somebody says the word breakfast to you, all you could think of are the times you had breakfast, not actually go, what did I do this morning? It's remembering false memories. It's also going, well, I know what I did after that, and I know what I did before that, but that part in the middle is really blurry. It's kind of like remembering what you did back when you were a kid. Or maybe what you did in a semester. I could be asked, Armand, what did you do junior year of high school? And I can definitely tell them what I did my senior year. That was noteworthy. I can definitely tell them what happened to me my sophomore year. But my junior year, well, a lot of stuff happened that was new in my sophomore year. And even more new stuff happened in my senior year. But if you ask me about a specific semester in my junior year, I'm not going to have that accurate information. I'm 34. That was a long time ago. So when you ask me, what did you have for breakfast? My brain immediately goes, that was a long time ago. And so you just feel like you have the missing information. And then you remember, get this creepy feeling that that has been your memory your entire life. The way you hide that you have a memory disability, the way you hide the fact that you can't really remember anything is by telling the truth and telling them what you do know as a fact. So when they go, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Why not just say, I don't really remember what I had breakfast for this morning, but I'm guessing it's nothing because I'm really hungry now. And then you'll get a laugh. And that's it. The information that they asked for was negated. If I had a doctor ask me what did I have breakfast for this morning, and it was a memory test or... I don't know. Maybe it was just light conversation. I would definitely have to just tell them at the get-go. I have DID. I, I have no idea. And so you learn to live in the now. And it's so ironic when you're freaking out about something and you're thinking about your past and your future and somebody tells you, live in the now. Don't think about the future or the past. 
I literally can't. That's horrifying. I've been stuck in the now for so many years that I don't know who I am. Don't tell me to do what I've been doing exceptionally well because I got no other option. But that's harsh. That's mean. They don't know you have DID. They don't know you have a memory disability. They want to help you. They want you to feel calm. And they want you to, you know, maybe let go. So, you have bits and pieces, and you decide to be a detective. And you decide to try to figure out what was that story. And so I'd like to share with you one of the times I had to be a detective. One of the many times that I had to be a detective and figure out what happened when I switched with Damien. At this point in time, somewhere in my treatment, I believe it was outpatient or maybe after outpatient, probably during, to be honest. One day, Oh, and at this point in time, if you're keeping up with the story, Damien is no longer abusing me at this point. He and I had figured things out a little bit more, but it still hurt trusting him. So, one day, Damien says to me, You know, if I was in control of the body, I would do a lot better than you would. And I wanted to call his bluff so bad. I wanted to prove him so wrong. I'm Armand. I'm the host. That is infuriating to hear that I took care of this body, that I took care of us for so many years. And yet you have the gall to tell me that if you were in control, you would do so much better when your experience is nowhere near the level of mine after all those horrible things you did to me. That is what I thought to Damien. <sighs> but I was feeling hopeful. I was hoping I was wrong. So, for the first time ever, I voluntarily switched. I ended up dissociating so much I was so frustrated, so angry that I dissociated. And when I came back, oh, oh my God, the movie, the fast forwarding, the TV going in and out. Oh, what a God awful story. I had to talk with Nikki, my partner. They told me that they talked with Damien in the morning and that he left. And then I looked at my phone and I saw that he hadn't texted anyone. I saw that he got no phone calls. So he didn't have a stranger to talk to. And on top of that, I found a knife in my hand. 
And it was a small knife. Definitely looked cool. Maybe something Batman would have. But why the fuck did he buy a knife? What made him think owning a knife would do anything for us? For me? And so I woke him up. I go, Damien, where did you get this knife? And so he tells me that he was on the pier and there was a shop nearby and they sold knives and he saw it and he figured that if we were going to get jumped or that if people were going to steal from us, that it would be better to have the knife to defend ourselves. And I said, that's a really good fucking excuse to go, well, I had the knife on me, so I could just cause more violence. And he was embarrassed. Because he's a fucking child. He's a teenager who wants to be in a fight to prove that he could kick ass to show that he was still tough like when he used to kick my ass. Idiot. He apparently was asked by the store clerk, the guy behind the glass counter, what do you want the knife for? And he said, I plan on going to a rough part of town and I just want to make sure I'm protected, you know? I looked at Damien and I was like, do you live in a fucking movie? What the, f who the fuck says that? Y you might as well have just said, I want to buy some drugs and I want to make sure the transaction goes well. What? It was mortifying. It was so embarrassing to hear him say something that cringy. You think you're going to get in a fight? Have you looked at us? Who the fuck would have no pity for us? I've had so many bullies and all of them have apologized to me. It boggles my mind that the idea that Damien would feel so unsafe, by the way, walking around a pier, not a city, a pier, that he's like, oh, cool, nice. This will make me cool. So I'll buy it. And then if I get in a fight, I'll win the fight. And it's just like, you, you child. <sighs> So I asked him, what else did you do? And then he showed me. There was like a gazebo and some sitting areas and some grass. And he, his plan was to go around, talk with people and try to make friends like I did in high school. Just go from group to group, introduce himself, start up a small conversation or whatever. But he chickened out. He was afraid. 
he never talked with people before. He only ever berated me. And so he sat in the grass for a while. I don't know how long. He sat under the gazebo for I don't know how long. And he sat on the fucking stairs to the beach for I don't know how long. But what he did show me, what he did tell me, was is that some people stared at him. And when they saw him in the same spot way later, th they noticed. And that's it. That's it. He did nothing all day. He bought a knife, did nothing. And he had the gall to fucking tell me that he could be a better host. I was just like, you stupid idiot. And that's the thing. He was out there for like four hours. And that's all I know. That, that's it. That's the end of the story. He sat around. And before he sat around, he bought a knife. What? The fuck? God, it gets me mad just thinking about it. And then I have to go through my day. I, I, I have to... I, I have to accept that literally I was absent for a certain amount of hours. Nothing happened. Thank God. But the fact that he thought something would happen and that he was willing to act on it really was just, it wasn't unnerving because at no point in time did he ever say to me, I am looking for this, I want this, or I'm going to do this and then have an implication that therefore something else would happen. Like, let's say he did go out with that knife and he started showing off the knife to somebody or let's say he did go out throughout that knife and then he goes into a bar and picks a fight with somebody. No, no. Tough, bullying Damien went out and was a fucking weeb and just sat around and did nothing. Oich. And this was before I found him, you know, his safe place to be unconscious. So after that, I was just like, I'm never letting you out again. I am never letting you out again. And then I missed. And then I made a mistake and I did. It had been a long time. Time had passed. And he wanted to front. And I let him because I was exhausted. And he met a friend of mine. And he was just god awful. I still don't know what he said to them. But when I asked them, how was it meeting Damien? They said he was really negative. And he was just against everything I said. And I just felt like shit. 
because I have no idea what he said. I have no idea what they talked about. All I know is that they met, they walked, and then he came back home. And now years later, through somebody else, from what I understand, they didn't believe that that, that was Damien. From what I understand right now, I don't think they'd think DID exists. And so I have no way of explaining that I am so psychotic, that I'm so sick and mentally ill, that my moments of not having control is literally losing my memory. And just like Mr. Jekyll and Hyde, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I'm, I, uh, I just, <sighs> the thing about being the host and the thing that fronts in the system, by the way, that's, that's what we refer to ourselves as a system, a grouping, a they, them. It hurts that I always had to be the one to protect and to be the adult and to do the right thing. And it was hard because some systems, they usually call them like a protector, a protector altar, the altar that will front and just take care of the body, take care of you. And I never had one of those. I was the protector and I was the host and that's tough. The other day I woke up and I tried doing something and it ended up being a dream and I woke up again and then I was stuck and I was like trapped in bed. And then I woke up again. And this time I was actually awake. Just a dream within a dream within a dream. And it's like my dreams are just restarting over and over and over again. And it shook me. Because once I woke up, I didn't know whether or not I was actually in reality or if I was in another dream. And then I had a prevision and I saw something I hadn't seen in a long time. And so I rushed out of bed, checked to see who was home. And then I had to be detective and figure out were those dreams or did I switch? I found out they were dreams and I was really, really thankful. So I took my emergency med, got up, got ready for work, went to work and had a very hard time because I was so exhausted 
from figuring out whether or not I was in reality. To figure out whether or not I had a new personality. It's one thing to have a dream and not know whether or not it's real. It's another thing to have a daydream. And then when you come out of the daydream and you do think it's real. This one, I'm going to give you a warning on. Because I don't, I don't like it. One vision that I had, and this is the stage before I switch, before I need to switch, because I can't control it, but I can put myself in the conditions to make it easier to happen. But I didn't want to happen in this situation. I had received a phone call from my aunt after watching the news on the television and on TV, there was a plane crash and they were assessing on whether or not there was any survivors and the flight had my parents on it. And so this phone is ringing and I pick up the phone and it's my aunt. And she tells me, Armand, I'm so sorry. Your parents, they didn't make it. We'll, we'll do everything we can to make it so you can live with me. And then she would just sob. And I was stuck there, frozen on the phone, staring at the TV, waiting for them to announce on the TV of my mother's and father's flight that they were dead. And then the phone turned into a steering wheel. And I was in bumper to buffer traffic in Washington on vacation with my partner. And she has her hand on her shoulder going, Armand, Armand, are you okay? As tears start going down my face and I see the forest around us and the cars and the freeway. And I turn to her and the only thing I could ask her was, are my parents alive? And she goes, yeah, yeah, they're okay. You had a vision. Everything's fine. Do you want me to call them now? And I go, no. And I just wait. And sob. And make sure that I didn't press on the brake or didn't press on the accelerator. Because we were in bumper to bumper traffic in Washington. Having that happen to you up to three times a day for I don't know how many years really, 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 really wears you down. Constantly thinking that a loved one died. Constantly thinking that you died. Constantly wondering on whether or not your reality is real. 
and questioning whether or not you can keep going and receiving horrible news after horrible news, holding someone in your arms as they grow cold and none of it's real. Not a single piece of it was real. And yet it felt so, so horrible. If you went through that as long as I did, and a stranger came up to you and said, you want to switch bodies? You'd say yes in a heartbeat. And then you could finally sleep and be in the place that I'm in right now, which is my bed. And then when you would wake up, hopefully you'd be in a better position, maybe feel a little rested, but sometimes you wake up and you find out that the person you switched bodies with bought a knife and sat around and did nothing. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) One time I switched with Bernie and he was so scared. It was at the hospital And all he could do was sit down and cry, silently, slowly. And he was terrified any time someone walked by. He kept begging for me to wake up, but I couldn't switch back with him. We were both stuck there, me watching him. And then finally the crying stopped and I wasn't looking at him anymore. And I was finally in my first person perspective. I could finally see out of my own two eyeballs again. And I got up, wiped my face and went to wherever they needed me to be. Switching with kiddo has only happened once, and I don't think it will ever happen again. But now that I say that, maybe I have switched with kiddo. But those other times, I don't know. But the one time I do know for a fact I switched with kiddo, this is what happened. We were in inpatient, and so he wakes up, He starts to walk out into the hallways and he doesn't really know where he is and he wants to explore. A nurse told him he couldn't go down the hallway. And the way he was telling me all this, the way he was showing me this was kind of like, I wanted to, but that wasn't allowed. I wanted to, 
but that wasn't allowed. And so the nurses took his vitals, wrote down notes, and then he played Game Boy. And then he went back to bed. And I think this was at like some early hour in the morning. I don't know. Could have been 11 p.m. It could have been 2 a.m. I have no idea. All I know is that they said some things to him. He cooperated, played Game Boy, went back to bed. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. One time, out of many times, I forgot about someone who was really special to me. Their entire existence gone. I met them at my partner's reunion, high school reunion. And they go, it's me. Don't you remember me? You're kidding, right? And the person that I was with at the time, I had let them know I've lost most of my memory from high school. If somebody doesn't understand that I can't remember them, will you please help me? And he said, sure. And so we both stood there trying to explain to her how I couldn't remember her at all. And that was quite a few years ago. And today, I finally remembered her. She was a dancer, pop and lock. She was someone very special, really smart. And so she took me to her dance club where I learned to break dance. And I wouldn't have known break dancing without her. She was also a very close friend of my sister. And apparently, sometime later, she was even more involved with an ex of mine, close friends with them too. And remembering all that today was really shocking because that showed how somebody so special, so unique, so interwoven in my life could be taken away from me at any moment. But don't worry about it. Just live in the now. Because if I ever see them again, well, I'll have to apologize. Tell them again about my disorder. And tell them that I finally remember. And let them know how much I admire them. And that it really, really hurt to not be able to remember somebody so fantastic. Somebody who helped me grow as a person. I can't remember my family members' names. I have a decent amount of family members, but I can't, I can't remember their names sometimes. So if you want to know what it's like to, to not remember, just live in the now. My name is Armand Gutierrez. Thank you for letting me share. This is DID and me. Talk to you soon.